Our reading is from Genesis 1-1. I went out on a limb and didn't bookmark my reading this morning. So. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Word of the Lord. I wonder how many of you are familiar with the word syncretism. The dictionary will tell you that syncretism is the act of blending the elements of one religion with another, uh, in the result of which is something that's brand new altogether. Many people see syncretism for that reason as an inherently bad thing because they believe that the resulting beliefs are so watered down uh, that they're outright changed and that the real essence of what that faith is about is lost. Turns out the word, if you break it down, comes from two Greek words. The first little part of that word, S-Y-N, means uh, with or together. The last part of the word comes from the Greek translation of the word Cretan. The Cretans were a people group that the Greeks did not think too much of. If you were thought to be a Cretan, you were at the bottom of the social barrel. So syncretism was being with those people. And so what you have is, is this thought experiment that I think would be interesting for us to play what people in the world would you most violently react to being paired with? So thought experiment, let's say that there is a movement afoot in the state of Mississippi for us to set aside our petty differences between Mississippi State fans and Ole Miss fans. The suggestion is set forward that uh, state fans periodically recite the hotty toddy cheer at some of their home games. And Ole Miss fans will be glad to bring some cowbells to Vaught-Hemingway Stadium for some of our games, right? Love can build a bridge. Don't, be, don't shake your heads. Now you're shaking your heads because you're like, there's not a chance that's going to happen. Because you would say to blend the much-beloved traditions of Ole Miss athletics with those of Mississippi State would do such violence to our traditions that the leftover version would be nothing like what a real Ole Miss fan is. Now, what in the world does this have to do with the book of Genesis? Well, whenever you begin a new study in the Bible, it's always best to consider the original audience and the people to whom the book was written. And the tradition is on pretty solid ground when it suggests that Moses and his scribes were indeed the singular authors of the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch. And Moses' life is the central feature of all these books. Moses is here to lead God's people out of captivity on their way to a promised land where they could be renewed into what God would have them to be. But remember, these people who Moses is leading have been enslaved for 400 years. That means that generation after generation had lived and died under Egyptian tyranny and the paganism that inevitably came along with it. So it's another equally interesting thought experiment. What does 400 years of cultural captivity do to the collective consciousness of a people group? What will they suffer from after something like that? We know that the Jews retained some of their cultural distinctiveness while they were living over in the, well, I guess in the land of Goshen. But you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to realize that all of that time of living with the Egyptian way of thinking, the Egyptian way of life, was creeping in. Egyptian deities with all these, these eccentricities had begun to blend with Jewish culture and at least in God's view, threatened to turn it into something other than what he intended. 
So Moses is writing to these people who for 400 years have had their distinctiveness, as it were, filed down by Egyptian paganism. It was going to take generations of Israelites to purge the Egyptian way from their thinking and their practicing, if, by the way, that ever happened at all. In short, Moses was dealing with the threat of syncretism in their midst. And his task was to walk along with Yahweh as Yahweh rewrote the identity of literally hundreds of thousands of people into what he intended it to be. And how is he going to do that? Answer, the book of Genesis. <laughs> My premise is, is that this is what the book of Genesis is. Genesis is going to introduce us to the origin of all things. It's going to introduce us to these foundational ideas that shape God's people into what they're supposed to be and purge from their polluted imaginations the gods of Egypt. So every week this semester, we're going to seize upon one word that describes how God is forming these people. Why? Because the problem of syncretism is still with us. There will never be a generation of Jesus' church that doesn't wrestle with the temptation to remake itself in the world's image. There will always be a temptation. So Genesis 1 opens by baldly asserting that Yahweh, the Jewish God, is the God of all gods. That there is no other. In a word, this God is sovereign. Three simple points this morning. God and the gods, God and his creation, and then some application as we look at God and God's people. First of all, notice God and the little g gods. The first 10 words of the Bible would have shocked the original audience. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Such a familiar phrase, right? Very much part of our own cultural lexicon. But to that ancient tribal religion, you could hardly have been weirder had you opened your holy book that way. But the weirdness to that culture forms the scaffolding for the way in which God's people still view the world. And here's the reason why. Because if you go back to those ancient Near Eastern gods, what you'll find in those places are descriptions of how they functioned. There's a particularly well-known Babylonian creation myth known as the Enuma Elish that describes the creation of the world as a result of the conflict among gods. Genesis, on the other hand, begins with the will of one God who is Lord over all. That myth also pictures a world where the gods are, are just part of the world that they made, where the things that they're created are side by side with the divine spirit. But in Genesis chapter 1, we see God is distinct. He's above his creation. In other words, God is not what he made, nor is he in what he made. Rather, he is the fountain of what was made. Even further, in Near Eastern mythology, the sun and moon and stars, those are considered to be gods themselves. I read one commentator who suggested that's why it's referred to later on in Genesis 1 as the greater and lesser lights. Because Moses didn't want to use the names sun and moon because it would have tempted people to think that those were actual gods. Finally, when you look at Genesis 1, you realize that human beings are not an incidental part of the story like they are in these ancient myths, but actually they're the high point of God's creation in the story. God was the one who provided for humans, not the other way around. Okay, now I'm guessing that that is about as interesting to people here um, in zero fashion. <laughs> no one sees why this is relevant, but I think it absolutely is for this reason. Because every single culture 
has a conception of what is ultimate. We all have, as it were, a grounding concept from which we live our lives and we use to understand the world around us. And our particular moment in this generation is no different. I would make an argument like many have that the premise of this culture's secular worldview is the first in human history to attempt to build a society with reference to nothing outside of our own inward passions and desires. In other words, we may be a deeply post-religious West in our day, but that doesn't keep us from having our own little g gods. We're going to spend a whole lot more time unpacking this in the weeks to come, but there's a philosopher at Grove City College by the name of Carl Truman who wrote what I would consider to be a groundbreaking book back in 2020 called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And the premise of the book is exactly what I'm saying. We live in a time, Truman says, of the preeminence of the self. Every aspect of identity is drawn from my own psychologized, emotional, especially sexual desires and life. So historically, when you begin to answer a question from generations of old of who are you, you would have had the answer be something that was external to you. You would say, I am the son of my parents, or I am a member of this particular tribe. You might say, I am a farmer or a lawyer or something else. And of course, the most common answer was, historically, I am what my religion says that I am. All that to say is we defined ourselves by external identity markers. But Truman's whole argument is that somewhere during the 18th century, the answer to who you were started turning inward. What you thought of you was determined more by your internal desires than anything else. And so Truman has suggested in our day, in a very literal way, Western civilization has deified themselves made gods, as it were, of our own appetites and of our own inward impressions. Which is one of the reasons why oftentimes people of faith grow in their frustration when they attempt to reason with those in the cultural secular world with logic. We say things like this, what you're saying makes no sense. Our biology is central to who we are. Sure, male and female stereotypes may not be as rigid as some religious people suggest, but that does not mean that gender is completely non-binary. You say this to your friends, and they respond this way. You cannot tell me what I know to be the truth inside me. I am a man trapped in a woman's body, or vice versa. That is my truth. And it feels unassailable in that moment. But my premise this semester is simply going to be this. You will argue until you are blue in the face against what you may perceive to be bad ideas. But until you begin to address the underlying little g God of the internalized self in those people's lives, we will fall on deaf ears. 100%. And my point this morning in Genesis 1 is that the, in the same way that that little verse cut across the ancient Near Eastern cultural conceptions of deity, it does the exact same thing to us. 
Because here in Western civilization, the Bible still stands up and says, in the beginning, God. It begins with him. We are derived from him. We live for him. We exist because of him. Which means, among other things, that he is in control. And I thought that needed a point all by itself. So we see God and the gods. What about God's relationship to the creation? Because notice in the passage, there's no attempt to explain how God got there. No, nor will you find any reference to it in the rest of the Bible. Because the Bible is not teaching or presenting to us some generic, benign, misty, transcendent being who somehow is subject to all the same rules of living that you and I are. No, no, no. This God is pre-existent. He is self-sufficient. He, is he isn't dependent upon anything outside of himself and his own being. I don't think you can actually dwell on this too much. Mostly because of the profundity of it, you'll never get to the end of it. Um, it was convictions like Genesis 1-1 that led the people who framed and wrote our own denominational um, standard that we call the Westminster Confession of Faith to pen paragraphs like this one in its chapter on the nature of God. Listen to this. God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is all sufficient in and unto himself, nor does he need any of his creations or derive any glory from them. Rather, he manifests his own glory in, by, unto, and on them. He is the only source of all being, by whom, through whom, and to whom everything exists. He has completely sovereign dominion over all things and does with, to, or for them whatever he pleases. Everything is revealed and completely open to him. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and does not depend on any created being, so that to him nothing is conditional or uncertain. He is completely holy in all his purposes, works, and commands. To him is due whatever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require from his angels, human beings, and all other creatures." You get a nosebleed with that kind of rhetoric. But I hope you hear what the confession is saying. It's saying more than just, oh, God is in charge, which of course he is. But what he's saying is also, in essence, he is the fountain of everything. Anything that you and I can say that we know is only because he chose to reveal it. Reminded me of that great line in J.I. Packer's uh, wonderful book, Knowing God where he says that knowledge of an in, of an, a, a, a superior being by an inferior being is completely dependent on the, on, the, on the transcendent being's willingness to reveal himself. In Genesis chapter 1, that's what God establishes. He says, this is what the girl, world looks like. Why? Because in the beginning, God created been a whole lot of discussion of that word created. I grew up being taught, I think actually rightly, that that word means that God created out of nothing. You've heard the Latin phrase ex nihilo. All it means is that God wasn't using something that was already available to make what is. 
Actually, the opposite is true. We have what is because he made it. So for our purposes, the whole Bible, if you think about it, opens up with a direct challenge to our present secular moment. Because I don't think that I could say anything more controversial to our generation than this this morning. There is something outside of your feelings. There is something outside of your impressions, of your desires, of your hopes, and of your wishes. And that something is in charge of you. He made you. He defines you. He invites you in to enjoy the world he made. None of what he is is dependent upon what you think of him. That's the God of Genesis 1.1. And it's one of the reasons why I think people get so tongue-twisted when we try to interact with the secularism around us because it's very difficult to try to pitch to the generation. It is not that I'm saying something negative about you. What I'm presenting to you is this reality that you and I seem to be booting off of different spiritual hard drives. I am trying to look at my life, my interior life, in the face of what I believe to be external to my life, and I am to mold my interior life in accordances with the realities outside of me. That's fundamentally a Christian posture. But we're simply suggesting that, that we seem to have flip-flopped that to where now we are saying my job as a human to be fully human is to attempt to mold the world outside me to fit with my own desires inside. Which is it? Will my interior life be shaped by the realities outside or will I do everything I can to shape the realities outside to fit my conception of what the real me is? Because until we answer that question, the, the rest of this makes no sense to the upcoming generation. I remember one theologian saying, God made man in his image and man has been returning the favor ever since. Trying to make him in our image. This is the reason though, why the scripture has places like Isaiah 45, verses 11 and 12, when the prophet says, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, Ask of me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the works of my hands? I made the heaven and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I command all their host. That's the God, our Lord over creation, that comes to us in Genesis chapter 1. Okay, so what does this mean? How in the world would this apply to us? How does creation apply to God's people? Because I have a vivid memory of reading that same passage from the confession that I just read at a meeting of what we called uh, chaplains when I was the RUF campus minister at the University of Memphis. Five years before I, prior to coming here in 1999, I was there at the University of Memphis. And we had a little chaplain's council that on semi-regular bases, we'd get together and talk shop. And on one particular occasion, we decided we would have a theological discussion and ask the question, who is God? We went around and I, of course, I, of course sort of in anticipation, had brought my, my trusty pocket Westminster confession, because what good Presbyterian doesn't have one of those with him, right? And I remember reading that section and having one of the other campus ministers, and I'm not going to name who it was because no one person wants to be representative of a whole denomination. 
But there was one guy in the room who began to twist his face into one of utter disgust. So much so that by the time I finished that one paragraph, literally the one I just read, he immediately spoke up and he said, I mean, and he pointed to everybody else in the room, I don't know where you guys are with that kind of stuff, but I would absolutely suffocate under that kind of conception of God. Hmm. Well, I was trying not to be defensive, right? Being a class act here. But I really wanted to know what was the alternative. And he began to sort of launch into something that was maybe a little bit meandering, uh, maybe it was a little off-putting, but his simple point was this. It is the openness of our conception of God that is the real way to go. Human beings, he claimed, want freedom from the closed system that traditional conceptions of God put them in. And the sovereignty of God, he said, is too constrictive. It's too inhibiting for human nature and human flourishing really to be helpful. Well, I did not bring this up. But my first thought, especially whenever I get questions like that, is, well, okay, I can understand how you think that, <clears throat> but doesn't it matter at all whether it's true or not? Because the question of whether it's true <laughs> occurs to me, it's like, well, if for some reason I do stand before God one day, um, I'm not exactly sure that he's going to care about whether I thought his nature was helpful or constructive for human flourishing. The question is, what is true about him? It reminded me of a conversation I had when I was in high school where I was expressing to a counselor that I felt like I had come to a point in my life where I needed to make Jesus the Lord of my life. And my friend said, brother, he said, nobody makes Jesus the Lord of anything. He is the Lord. The question is, will you acknowledge it as such and relate to him as such? Changes the conversation, don't you think? But here's the deal. Go back to my chaplain friend's objection. Does the idea of the absolute sovereignty of God over all of his creation represent something that contributes to or diminishes from human flourishing? That's the question. What benefits are there to be gained from placing, as it were, the great thought of God as the fundamental orienting truth of all of my life? Because that is my premise this morning, that there is no doctrine like the absolute sovereignty of God to renovate your inner world. And I think I'll go further that it actually rings true for us when we really begin to think about it. Why do I say that? Well, I say it because of this. My oldest daughter, Anna Grace, um, has sort of grown up into my movie-watching buddy. And last week, long before I'd actually completed this sermon, she and I got to sit down and watch a movie last Sunday afternoon. I was so impacted by it, I completely rewrote this last point on the basis of it because we watched the now classic M. Knight uh, Shyamalan uh, uh, movie called Signs. Remember this movie starring Mel Gibson? The movie's 20 years old, so if you haven't watched it by now, I'm not apologizing for spoilers. But here's the way the story goes. It's about the story about a priest, played by Mel Gibson, who has lost his faith. And lost his faith in actually just about anything. Ever since the death of his wife a year earlier, he lives with his brother and his two children. Well, strange things begin to happen, which turn out to be a hostile alien invasion. One particular alien winding up in his den, clutching his son about to take his life. 
Well, the cleverness of the movie is the way in which Shyamalan weaves together all of these flashbacks from the priest's life to this particular moment in time. And suddenly, while he's standing there with, the, with this alien, with his son, he suddenly sees the significance of all of the little things in his life. His daughter's weird preoccupation with water, his son's asthma, his little brother's failed baseball career, even the final words of his deceased wife. They all coalesce. They come together in a moment in order to save his son. And as I was sitting there last Sunday, I was like, ding, ding, ding. That reminds me of something. It reminds me of the story at the end of the book of Genesis, which sadly we're not going to get to this particular semester, maybe for a future series. But you got to hear me. The very last story in Genesis bookends with the open of Genesis in the most beautiful ways because it closes with Joseph. You know the story of Joseph, right? He goes, his father Jacob, you know, he's estranged from, but he goes down to Egypt. God protects him. He becomes a commander in Egypt. He brings all of his brothers and his father's family down to Egypt to, to, to guard them. But then Jacob, his father, dies. And the rest of his brothers are like, well, that's it for us. We're done. Joseph's going to take us out. And then in the last chapter of Genesis, chapter 50, verses uh, 19 and 20, he says this. He says, do not fear, for I'm not in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The book of Genesis begins and ends with the exact same concept of God's absolute control over all things. But this is what's crazy. In the movie... In the middle of the movie, Mel Gibson's character, the priest, gives us the theme of the movie. Listen to this dialogue. He says to his little brother, look, people break down into two groups. When some experiencing something lucky, group number one sees it as more luck than, uh, than uh, says, sees more than luck. They see more than coincidence. They see a sign. They see evidence that there's someone up there. There's someone watching out for them. Group number two, they see this pure luck, just a happy turn of chance. You see, what you have to ask yourself is, what kind of person are you? Are you the kind that sees signs and sees miracles? Or do you believe that people just get lucky? Or look at the question this way. Is it possible that there are no coincidences? Look, I have no idea the spiritual state of M. Night Shyamalan. But the point is, he stumbled across something I think that we want to be true. We long to know that all of the disparate, seemingly random things that I go through that look like they have zero meaning whatsoever, even we would say the suffering that we encounter, the difficulties we may presently be in, even if Joseph is to believe our own actions that we did on our evil intent. We want to know that God is going to use it all, and he's going to weave. He's going to take it in. He's going to pull it together so that by the end, he will, as Joseph in the old translation says, to save many people alive. Just like that priest little boy. My point is, is that Genesis opens up with, and Genesis closed with this idea that indeed there are no coincidences. 
that God is in living control of his universe. And while we may not like it, and while we may never stop grappling with the implications of it, there is nothing that provides the foundations of human flourishing like the idea that there is someone other than me at the steering wheel of the universe. That's encouraging. And each week, our mission is going to be looking at one more element of how God has framed that out for us. And my invitation for you is to come and join us for it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's hard for us to fit inside finite minds exactly what it means for you to be thus. But we at least have enough apprehension of looking back at our own personal histories and know that we need you to be in control of this world. Even when we roll our eyes and we get cynical about the fact that you must be far, far away, the truth is you are still at work. You're still inhabiting the praise of your people, which means that you will listen to our music even now. So Father, hear our worship, hear our singing, because indeed you stand as the great sovereign over it all. Would you lead us into that? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.